0: Hi again, and welcome to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker.
1: And I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes.
0: In today's episode, we want to introduce you to Ben Ferrand, a soldier, a lawyer and a campaigner for justice who wouldn't take no for an answer.
1: Mm, That's intriguing. What was his question then? Well, I'm not sure we can sum it up
0: simply at this point, Carla, but I can tell you the question Ben was asked in Luxembourg in December 1944 by a lieutenant colonel in the US Third Army. Tell me, Corporal, he said in all seriousness, what is a war crime? And that is what we'll be talking about today in the company of one of the greatest historians of the Second World War and its aftermath, Keith Lowe.
1: Okay, so how does Ben end up in Luxembourg in 1944?
0: Well, it's a quick story because Ben is only 24 years old at this point. He was born in Hungary to a Jewish family who, like so many other European Jews a generation later, fled persecution and they made their way to New York. They lived in Hell's Kitchen. I think he would have described it as the... the um, What would he have described it as? <laughs>
2: Well, it's called Hell's Kitchen for a reason. Yes, it is
0: called Hell's Kitchen for a reason. It's quite cool now, isn't it, I think? Well, it wasn't cool in 1920s. (laughs) His dad was a janitor, didn't speak English. And strangely, and I suppose a a bit like Cornelia Sarabji, who we covered on a recent Trapped History episode, Mm. Ben was sort of drawn like a magnet to the law. And he won a scholarship to study at Harvard. He graduates at Harvard in 1943, America is at war, he signs up, is taken across the Atlantic, and one June morning in 1944, he finds himself in a landing craft off the French coast. The
3: British sailors were in charge of the landing craft, and uh, as I jumped out into the water, for most of the soldiers, the water went up to their ankles. For me, it went up to my knee. And the British sailor slapped me on the back, and he said, "Uh, that's the way to Berlin, Young. Good luck. And that was my return to Europe. By that time, there were dead soldiers, American soldiers in uniform, floating face down in the water, tanks mired in the sand, uh, the Germans waiting a short distance away to counterattack. I won't go into the details of war itself, Uh, that's been adequately described elsewhere, I can only tell
0: you the conclusion, war is hell. Ben's war was like so many other young soldiers' wars. He fights through France and into Germany. He's there for the Battle of the Bulge. He describes his time in the army as the most miserable experience of his life. And he prepares himself not to expect anything. When, all of a sudden, out of the blue, he's asked that question. What is a war crime?
1: Why would he even be asked that?
0: Yeah, it's not something that you or I would be asked <laughs> no, no, I've never been asked that. <laughs> um, But news had reached the Third Army that Ben might be their man because back in Harvard he'd worked with the most eminent criminologist in America and for his troubles he was told that he had to read every book in the university's library on war crimes. Ben was Mr. War Crimes. Okay. And as the Allies are pushing through Europe, they begin to uncover horrors. They need lawyers, they need investigators, they need experts on war crimes, they need people like Ben so that they can forensically
1: pursue the truth. Why did they have to take a legal approach rather than summary justice? You know, when you look at the French resistance, they would just take people out and shoot them. So why was this so different?
0: Well, it's, it's it's a question, I think, which goes to the heart of today's episode. Ben himself struggles with it, When, uh, later in the war, he links up with the Russians and he tells them that he's a war crimes investigator, one soldier asks him, don't you know what they did? He was really puzzled that you would need to be investigating this. And Ben, of course, says, well, yeah, you know, of course I know what they did. They killed all of these people. And the soldier replies, so why are you asking them? Just shoot them. And Ben says that in the years that followed, when he was trying... Often not wholly successfully to hold these criminals to account, he would often go back and think of that advice from that simple Russian soldier. I mean, Keith, I'm going to turn to you for a moment here. Summary justice or real justice, the rule of law?
2: Well, there, were, there was first thing to say is that there was a lot of summary justice about. Like you said, the French resistance, I mean, there were about 9,000 people who were sort of taken up against the wall and shot during the liberation and immediately after it. But the further east you go, the more summary justice there was. So, again, the Soviet soldiers, I mean, they would know all about summary justice. Yeah. Yugoslavia as well, there were about 70,000 people, um, you know, shot in front of trenches and, and just thrown into mass graves. 70,000? 70,000. 70, These are people who had been... On the wrong side of the war, they'd been in the sort of Croatian, Slovenian fascist parties and in their militias. So, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to feel too much sympathy for them. But on the other hand, there wasn't really a lot of uh, sorting the sheep from the goats. <laughs> mm, yeah. So, you know, you, you did get innocent people caught up amongst them. You know the the problem with summary justice is that you there's no space for any kind of nuance at all you're 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 guilty or you're innocent if you're guilty you're shot that's it um, but there are degrees of these things you yeah. know you know there there's a big difference between being the sort of person who has committed war crimes yourself or if you're just a sort of bystander who's been you know taken along for the ride uh,
0: unwillingly in lots of cases there's something that Ben himself actually says in something that he witnessed, which I think sort of uh, throws into sharp relief, all of those things that you're talking about, who is innocent, who is guilty and how you deal with that. And this was when Ben later on in the war was uh, spending time in concentration camps and trying to find justice there.
4: What I saw is really indescribable. I wrote somewhere that I had peered into hell. Uh, Hell was never as bad as that. Dead bodies lying on the ground, starving people scrounging in the mounds of garbage, hoping to find a piece of bread or something. The people themselves looked like skeletons. The crematory was still going. And uh, the SS were fleeing from the camp. Uh, I learned a lesson in vengeance there too one of the camps they were all similar Uh, the uh, inmates caught one of the guards and they beat him and then they put him in the crematorium and warmed him up and then took him out they beat him again and put him in again and and took him out until they roasted him. and uh, this taught me the effect of vengeance when you try to let vengeance take over you end up with roasting your adversary.
0: Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's a hard thing to hear, let alone to witness. It is. A, it's awful. I mean, this,
2: this sort of thing happened all over Europe um, and indeed in Asia as well. Uh, I mean, it's difficult to uh, to completely condemn it. After all... You know, th- these are the sorts of things that uh, that the war criminals themselves were doing. So why give them anything better than they would do to others? I mean, that's that's one arg- yeah. argument for it. There are other benefits to doing this sort of thing. Uh, summary justice is quick and it's mm. quite satisfying and it draws a line under things. So you, it, it enables a nation to move on more quickly in some respects. So I can see the the appeal... On the other hand, you're not really drawing a line under things. You're just storing up problems for the future. And more importantly, actually, and I think Ben Ferencz would have agreed with this, is that by not going through the process of a a trial, you're missing out on all that documentation, which we now, I mean, as a historian, I refer to this stuff all the time. And I can tell the story of the Holocaust or of uh, various other genocides around Europe because of the documentation that people like him gathered in order to hold a trial. If you just go and shoot someone against the wall, you don't need any documentation and all that gets lost to history.
1: So going back to Ben and this job and what it meant on a a day-to-day basis. Um, news will come to Army HQ of Allied airmen, for instance, being butchered by German civilians or of civilians being shot by Nazis. And Ben climbs into his jeep and makes his way to the scene of the crime.
3: I'd get the police chief or any official there, city official, say, I want you to bring in everybody who was within 100 yards of this event. We have a report here, Allied fires were shot. He'd say, I will They'd bring in a bunch of people and I'd tell them, they're going to sit down and write out exactly what happened, who did what to when, where, how. Anybody who lies will be shot. Well, human rights activists say, hey, you you didn't say that. I say, I did say that. What did you want me to say? Anybody who lies is not going to get their ice cream tonight? It never occurred to me. What what other coercion do I have? I'm sitting there, you know, the troops are in town. I usually am there alone. I have a 45 caliber pistol on my hip. I have tanks in the town, of course. And everybody is afraid of what America is going to do to them. And they'd sit down and start writing. If you've got twenty people writing and fifteen tell you the same story, the other five are lying. I didn't shoot them,
1: but I know from the fifteen what had happened. It's also messy and confusing, isn't it? You know, I was shocked by that first uh, recollection and with the crematorium, and then kind of shocked by that as well. The
2: thing is, it's, it's very easy for us sitting on our sofas to to you know say what would have been right but when you're yeah. in the midst of a, a war and there's people dead all around you um, you're, you're acting quickly on the spur of the moment according to you know the the, the needs of the moment so uh, yeah. it's it's very difficult to make a judgment from mm. from our perspective.
1: And then of course uh, reports of other atrocities started flooding in and Ben finds himself in Buchenwald, Malthausen and Dachau concentration camps. And almost, in a way, the only thing that saves him is the legal process because it gives him a structure and a purpose. Otherwise, he just would have gone mad. And as he himself says, without that, all you have is endless rage and sorrow. And there's one particular moment which starkly shows what Ben had to do.
3: Every camp had an office, a Schreibstube, a writing office. And what I would do was immediately go to the Schreibstube and seize whatever would be relevant for a war crimes prosecution. And when I came to the Schreibstube in Mauthausen, There was an inmate there who was a Schreiber, as they called him, and he said, oh, I've been waiting for you. And he said, come with me. And I recall going out with him to the electrified fence and his digging up a uh, box of records which he had kept. Those records were the records of all of the SS men, the identification cards, who had entered that camp uh, and who had left the camp. It had their photograph on it. It had their identifying uh, uh, numbers and addresses, date of birth, things of that kind. And he was supposed to destroy each one of those records before a new one was issued or when the man left the camp, and he didn't do that. Which meant that every time he saved one of those records, and there were hundreds of them, he put his life in jeopardy. Uh, And he was ready to do that, hoping and knowing that one day there would be a day of retribution. Uh, And he saved those records for that day.
0: This man who collected those ID documents and then buried them, he was clearly wanting to bear witness, mm. wanting to show that despite what is happening, someone at some point will be held accountable. And that's such a, a, a powerful thing for anyone to do.
1: Mm. It was incredible that he had the presence of mind to think ahead, to squirrel those things. Away and just hope that they would be useful at some point.
2: Yeah, it shows a faith in a future. <laughs>
1: yeah. Really? Yeah. And amazing is, that he could see that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's only so much that one man can take. And by December 45, with the war in Europe won six months before, Ben has had his fill. He applies for leave and sails for home, hoping never again to witness such horrors. But something draws him back. A letter, in fact, from the Pentagon. He's home for just a few weeks, but they want Ben. They need Ben back in Germany. The Nuremberg trials are underway.
0: And this is probably the point, really, to call on the knowledge and expertise of today's guest. You've already heard him, the historian Keith Lowe, who has written the quite brilliant books about the war and how we deal with it. The Fear and the Freedom, and Prisoners of History. Keith, welcome to Trapped History. Thanks for having me. Ben is part of an attempt to try and answer the question, the war's over, so where can we find justice? You've already talked a bit about summary justice, but but where where did people end up finding justice?
2: It's very easy to get sort of depressed about this, because we like to think that, you know, people will get their comeuppance. I think we should just take consolation in the fact that lots of people did. And they might not have got fully the punishment that they deserved, but they were punished to a certain degree. Some of them paid the ultimate price, were, were executed, not very many. But, you know, there was some justice there, and that is better than nothing. <laughs>
1: So there are lots of different definitions that get banded around, like war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, crimes against peace. Why do you think there are so many different terms and the difference between them? And is it a way to try and codify revenge?
2: Well, I mean, a a lot of these terms were invented after 1945 Mm. uh, because the crimes that were committed were so unusual, so vast, that they felt that the conventional ways of doing things were just didn't really express the gravity of what they'd seen. So there were three main categories, really. Um, there was the conventional war crimes, which were the ones that Ben Ferencz had studied at Harvard. You know, things like the wanton destruction of cities, which was defined in the Hague Convention's years before World War II. So th- those crimes already existed. But then they wanted to add to that crimes against humanity, things like the genocide of Jews and so on, which was so vast, it it needed a separate category. Mm. And then they added to that crimes against peace. You know, because it's impossible to go ahead with the Holocaust or commit any of these war crimes if war doesn't exist in the first place. So that's the sort of root cause of everything. And it was the thing that Ben Ferenz campaigned against most, trying to make aggressive war itself a crime. So if you don't go to war, you can't do any of these things.
0: You've talked about Nuremberg, but can you tell us a bit about what happens in Japan? Because Japan has a rather different experience of it. Their, their, their supreme leader isn't dead. Yeah, Japan is
2: very different in all sorts of ways. I mean, the, the whole way that Germany was treated, I mean, they were, they were quite thorough in a way, Trying to denazify the whole country, you know. So they they had all these different trials at every level of society. At Nuremberg, they had doctors on trial, businessmen on trial, and so on. None of that happened in Japan. They didn't try businessmen. They had they arrested them and they had them in prison for a while, but then they let them go without trying them. The only people who really were taken to justice were the the political and military leaders. But as you say the supreme leader, the emperor himself, was never put on trial. And that was part of the sort of surrender deal that they signed. The Americans said that they wouldn't put the emperor on trial in order to broker the peace more easily. So now you get into a, a debate about whether you know the idea of war crimes trials is actually a good thing or a bad thing at all, because if, if you want to stop people from committing crimes and, and sign a peace deal and you let them off as a price of that, well, one person is going free when he shouldn't, but thousands are being saved by the war not continuing longer. It's a bit of a difficult balance to, to find there.
1: So going back to Ben, if I may, He uncovers a huge stash of Gestapo files in Berlin which meticulously set out the actions of the SS Einsatzgruppen in Eastern Europe as they rounded up and slaughtered two million Jews, Roma and other people who the Nazis saw as undesirables. And the Nuremberg legal team, they were really, really stretched. No one had the time or the resources to undertake these new prosecutions. And so Ben stepped up and said that he would do it. And the trial of 24 SS commanders begins at the end of September 1947, and it lasts for six months. Now, Ben is only 27 years old at this point, and he's chief prosecutor for what is dubbed the biggest murder trial in history. Keith, you met Ben, you knew Ben. Um, And when I think of him, I think of him as an older gentleman. But then he was 27. I mean, that's massive, isn't it? Do you think he knew what he was letting himself in for? Probably, <laughs> probably not. And, and, and that might have been a
2: good thing. You know, I mean, if yeah. somebody who, who was uh, more experienced might have uh, bulked at the, the challenge. But mm. I mean, it's not only the fact that he's only 27. It's also that he's he's not really practiced law properly yeah. yet. I mean, yeah. he graduated from law school, but yeah. then he went straight into the army. So you know, after the war, he hasn't he hasn't actually got that much experience. He's got yeah. experience as an investigator. And suddenly he's here as chief prosecutor in this massive trial. It's, it's really impressive the mm. way he managed to negotiate that.
0: Is there an element of the allies, the allied victors, being so confident that they will give a guy just out of Harvard Law School with no prosecutorial expertise, they will give him the biggest murder trial in history because they know it's an open and shut case? That's a very good question, because
2: uh, it was absolutely paramount that they find these people guilty. Everybody knew they were guilty. So they can't have a not guilty verdict because that would just undermine the whole idea of justice. Mm. So in some ways, it was a risk giving it to a a rookie. But, you know... That's what's incredible about this time in history. So many people are thrown into positions that they would never have dreamed themselves being put in. Yes. Um, and, and war war does that. It throws people into these these impossible positions. And he was just in the right place or the wrong place, depending on your
0: point of view, at, at
2: the right time.
0: It does feel as though that Ben is part of this attempt to to create some structure, almost like a scaffold, it's a, terrible to use the word scaffold, um, but a scaffold around which you can build some understanding of what those various crimes are.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the, the Nuremberg trials were, uh, they were there as a sort of a showpiece really to show that we were trying to re-establish some kind of rule of law and that nobody was exempt. And that was important. To, to show the world that there was going to be some sort of justice. But again, you know, that you have limitations there. One of the things I remember when I interviewed Ben, he told me that uh, in the trial that he was prosecuting, they had 24 defendants. And you know why they had 24? I mean, he would, there were hundreds he could have charged, but they only had space for 24 because there were 24 spaces in the dock at Nuremberg. And so that's the only reason why they had 24 people indicted. So, I mean, that in itself is fairly random.
1: And when the Einsatzgruppen trial ended, all 24 were found guilty and 14 sentenced to death. However, when it came down to it and to Ben's disgust, only four were hung and by 1958, everyone else had been released from prison.
0: And the thing which really struck me is that the last surviving Einsatzgruppen commander, in fact, the last surviving defendant at Nuremberg, died in the 21st century, died in 2010. And we all can hear the voices of mothers and fathers and sons and daughters saying, "Is that justice?" Did people just get bored with it? Did people just want to say, "Let's just let sleeping dogs lie, let's push it and un- brush it under the carpet." We're, we're worried about how strongly the, the losers of the First World War were hit. And we don't want to go down that road again. Let's just, let's just let it go.
2: There is definitely an element of that, and there's also, you know, there's there's other problems in the world now. You know, our attention is is on the Cold War now. The the people who uh, were monsters in the previous war, they've been replaced by new monsters. You know, we've got the, the the Soviets to worry about. So our attention
0: is mo- has moved elsewhere. This sort of takes us on to Ben's view. And I think that Ben probably feels, I've done it.
1: Absolutely. I've had enough. Yeah. Ben has had his fill and he never prosecutes another criminal case, although he stays in Germany for nearly a decade trying to get restitution for people whose property has been looted by the Nazis. And then he goes back to his private law practice in New York for a quiet life. But something is niggling at him. Something's wrong. In his address to the trial, Ben had said,
3: Vengeance is not our goal, nor do we seek merely a just retribution. We ask this court to affirm by international penal action man's right to live in peace and dignity, regardless of his race or creed. The case we present is a plea of humanity to law."
0: And Ben didn't feel that that affirmation had been properly heard. And so in 1970, he gives up law and takes up campaigning. He wants nothing less than a permanent international criminal court to prosecute crimes against humanity. He writes huge tomes. These are the subtitles, the search for world peace, a step towards world peace, a way to world peace, even a common sense guide to world peace. get what he's after here. He lobbies, he makes speeches, and as I said at the beginning, he won't take no for an answer. And on the 17th of July, 1998, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court is adopted by the UN General Assembly. It's important to note that America, India, China, and later Russia would not sign or would withdraw their signatures But four years later, in 2002, a court is established in The Hague to investigate genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and the crime of aggression. And to date, 31 cases have gone to the court with 40 arrest warrants, 21 people detained and 10 people have been convicted. It's sort of the culmination of Ben's ambition in terms of world peace is it still a work in progress is it better in any way than Nuremberg is it better than (laughs) Nuremberg
2: I mean it's it's good to have an international court which we didn't have at Nuremberg but, but on the other hand in 1945 1946 we were much more unified as a world we had much more common sense of direction now that unity is really not there anymore we can't really agree on anything and that's a problem when it comes to something like the international criminal court because uh, you need agreement you need people to buy into it and if you've got three of the permanent members of the security council don't even recognize it that's a problem considering that the un security council is the sort of the, the, the final say on, on world law, that really is a problem. So until we get some sort of unity back, it will remain a problem. The criminals will never want to have a court,
3: but it's up to the public to either put them in jail or put them on trial or throw them out of office. They cannot continue this way, telling their troops to go out and kill people they don't even know crimes they can't even describe. And they kill them by the hundreds and the thousands. That's the world in which we live. And it's the world which I'm still trying to change at 103 years of age.
0: Ben Friends died age 103 on April the 7th, 2023.
3: What we have to do is never give up. Keep pushing that rock up the hill. Uh, I used to be seven feet tall. This wore me down. (laughs) It may be a bit tiresome at times, and of course there are times when you get discouraged. But I think we owe it to the memory of those who perished, never to give up, and never to abandon the ideals which we had when the war was over, that we could create a world where all human beings could live in peace and human dignity. Those were our dreams, those were ideals, those were the real reasons why we fought, Those are the reasons why many died. Let us keep that in mind uh, when we wish to honor the veterans and honor the Gauls. And I'm confident that if you do, particularly the young people here, you'll live to see a much better and more peaceful world. Thank you very much.
0: We ask all our guests to nominate someone for the Trapped History Hall of Fame, someone who We don't know anything about, but we really should. Keith, is there anyone that you would like to nominate? Uh,
2: Yes, there's another person who's in my book, actually, who, I mean, this might be a bit of a weird choice. In a way, he's a monster. His name was Yuasa Ken, who was a a Japanese medic. He himself committed war crimes. He performed vivisections on live Chinese people. So, So, you know, why would I pick him? Well, what's interesting about him is that he is one of the very, very few people I can think of who actually sat down and thought about what he'd done and realised how horrific it was and then held his hands up and admitted to it all and wanted his whole society to do the same thing. He's saying, you know, we in Japan have not faced up to the horrendous things that we did during World War II. And I did horrendous things too, and I feel horrendously guilty for what I did. The bravery to do that, to to face up to what you those horrible things that he did, to actually look them in the face rather than just try and push them away, try and pretend they didn't happen, try and brazen it out, which is what so many of the others did. He spent the rest of his life from the '60s onwards trying to publicise Japanese war crimes. Uh, And saying, you know, we as a society should be
0: facing up to these things. Wow. I mean, that's that's a lot of what we've been talking about today in a in a nutshell, that no one is a hero and no one is a villain all their life. And it sounds from what you're saying that he he committed horrific crimes was he recognized in Japan for his later attempts to try and get the nation to see what had happened
2: some of japan yes um uh, agreed with what he was doing but a lot vilified him i mean they wanted him to shut up they didn't want to look back on what they'd done and they didn't want their nation sort of the name of their nation being dragged through the dirt you know uh, and yet he refused to back down uh, i mean that's that's the thing that makes him so impressive is the fact that he is not only able to square up to what he did but genuinely wanted to repent and to do whatever he could to atone for what he and his nation had done that's you know, that's uh, for me is an argument against the death penalty there is always the chance, you know it might only be one in a thousand someone who does that well, you know And was he ever tried? Well, this is the thing: he wasn't tried, and that was part of the reason why he was so angry about this. And so he didn't feel like he should have been let off, and yet his whole country weren't even looking at any of the crimes they'd done. Mm.
1: Did he call out any other perpetrators by name, or was it just a general call? No, it was a general thing. He
2: he went back. He went back to his hospital, and he was They gave him a sort of welcome home party. And uh, he was astonished by this. He didn't feel like he deserved a welcome home. When one of the other doctors took him aside, you know, why are you so grumpy? He just looked at him and said, Don't you remember what we did? Mm. And this guy seemed to have no idea what he was talking about. Just sort of conveniently forget about the past and move on to the future.
0: Okay. Yeah, we've had, we've had uh, cheerier episodes of Trapped History. <laughs> You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Carla O'Shaughnessy and Oswin Baker. Our engineer has been MK Lee, and the Trapped History theme is by Pavlo Buterin. You've also heard the voice of the man himself, Ben Farans. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please give us a rating, it really helps. Visit trappedhistory.com for bonus episodes, transcripts, and where you can also send us your own nominations for the Trapped History Hall of Fame. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.